Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midio Meets podcast where we speak to a wide range of people from the music world. On the show this time we've actually got CJ Bolland. Uh, I don't know how that happened but yes we're speaking to CJ Bolland, uh, techno producer, remixer and DJ uh, known for his seminal tracks on RNS Records, his remixes of things like Prodigy No Good, he's remixed for New Order, he's remixed for Depeche Mode, and he's still making music today, uh, and he is literally one of my all-time heroes. Uh, you can now support the podcast in a few ways. Uh, if you don't want to donate money, I do make Max for Live devices, and I also sell uh, like musical hardware, MIDI stuff. So if you don't want to donate, um, you can buy something that I make or just simply like and share it and do all that rubbish. Um, anyway, let's get on with the show. And the first question I asked CJ was about his musical beginnings. Uh, well, a vivid one is the Doctor Who theme on telly. Literally when I think I was about two, yeah, about two years old, and every time it used to come on, I just used to bounce up and down on the settee <laughs> until the program started. And then it scared the shit out of me. And I used to hide behind the settee. <laughs> my mom noticed the reaction to the, to the theme tune and she bought me the, the seven inch. So, uh, and it was just, I don't know, something about the sound, about the, I don't know, the compression on the analog synth sound that just, I don't know, it just, it, it just spoke to me instantly. And then after that, it was the next, the very next thing would have been Jean-Michel Jarre, seeing him on television uh, with his new single, Oxygen. And uh, again, mum, mum, mum went to the record store, got me the, got me the album. So she said, well, this kid seems to like this instrumental bollocks. And then... <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible, man. Yeah, two seminal uh, sort of synth works there. Um, yeah, the Doctor Who theme was really like ominous, wasn't it? Yeah. Really dark yeah, yeah. and weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but lovely. You know, just, just really, really catchy. I mean, still, still it's, I mean... The first, the first two seconds of it, everybody knows oh, Doctor Who thing. There you go. It's instantly recognisable, and it's just sound of it's awesome. Absolutely, and and Jean Michel Jarre, like one of the pioneers of electronic music. For well, totally, totally. I mean, just I mean, again, seeing him, seeing that on TV. I mean, seeing anything on TV in 1974 was already like was spectacular. But this guy had, <laughs> like, he had like a big Moog modular synth and 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 an ARP 2500 modular synth and all this. And I mean, I'd never even seen an organ before, so it's like, you know, what's this all about? And then, and you, I mean, he obviously he was probably it was it was his video, so he wasn't actually playing it live, but he was supposedly playing it live. So you see him, see all these lights flashing, the VU meters banging backwards and forwards, and these amazing sounds coming. So I was instantly just hooked on this kind of well, this kind of vibe, this kind of sound. Not that that was the only thing going on, because mom and dad were big rock fans and stuff, so there was always some Beatles or Rolling Stones or The Shadows. There was always some, some, some music on. It was always music. That was always definite. But there was all kinds of genres and vibes and styles. But I just had this pre, pre-love for, well, you know, the dark electronic stuff. Excellent. Yeah. And, and where did that go from Jean-Marcel Jarre and The Who? Well, uh, basically, uh, well, apart from personally uh, trying to, trying to 
make stuff like that as well. But first, firstly, with toy org, literally with toys, with like little organs, little Casio things, or even before the Casios, uh, Bon Tempe's little wind organ things. I don't know if you remember those. I do, yeah. I used to have one, yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. We all did, I think, at some point. After <laughs> yeah, everyone's going to have love one it at well. one time. I used to race home from school just to start fucking playing little, you know, little melodies on it. And then, and then it would progress. And then uh, my, my nana, my, my, one of my grandmothers, my mom's mum, is actually Belgian. That's why the Belgian, why I actually leave, because all the rest of the family is British. I was also born in the UK. I didn't move to Belgium until I was three. Raised in English, as you can tell, but schooled in Dutch. Um, but uh, my grandma on my mum's side was Belgian, and she lived nearby, and she had an organ with two keyboards. And you could change the sound. I mean, like it was like five or six silly presets on it, like an organ, cello, whatever. And it sounded nothing like what it said it was going to sound like. But still, right, right, yeah. it sounds. And two keyboards to play with. So that was the next step. And that's it. It just progressed. And then I've, I got my first synth when I was about 11 or 12. Well, my hands on that first. It wasn't mine. It was a friend of mine's. who was a couple of years older than me. He was like 13 or 14. And he was into this kind of thing as well. And he had this uh, thing called the Yen SX-1000 which is a ba very basic old analog synth, a bit like an MS-20, a bit like a Korg MS-20. I don't know if you know, I'm talking synth stuff, so I don't know if you know, I don't know how, how much you know oh, about I'm, I'm pretty synth savvy, I'd say. All right, yeah, all right, fair enough. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> it, it's a bit like an MS-20, but without any patch possibilities. There's nothing, there's no in and out except an audio out. There's no MIDI, there's nothing else. But it does generate these typical analog sounds with with frequent, with, with an ADSS and a, and a cutoff on a resonance and all that stuff. So that was the next level again, stuff to, to tweak with. But how are these guys, you know, you can't play it all with like, you know, just like your two hands. I mean, I need to record. I've kind of record multi-track. Then I had a cassette player that had a microphone input on it. So I could record through the microphone input. And then I could play that tape back on a different cassette player and then play that back into the microphone and play something on top. So you can imagine after about five goes of that, I had, I had a multi-track going on, but it was like 98% hiss and 2% of what I was actually playing. <laughs> the quality deteriorated as, as we did more, more layers. Mm. And then I was like, well, how, surely you don't have to play it all. How do, you, how do these guys, you know, oh, a sequencer, how does that work then? So and then, you know, and then I, we, we got hands on my first sequencer, which was an SQ10 from Korg, which is just literally, a, well, well, a very basic old analog sequencer. And then and things just went from there. Then my first sampler, which was an Ensonic Mirage, uh, which was an old 8-bit sampler and also had a sequencer, an unquantizable 333 event uh, sequencer, but it, it did what I wanted, it sequenced. And it was brilliant, just brilliant. So I can go on like this for hours, by the way, just tell me. If That's <laughs> great, man. No, I'm really into the gear and I'm definitely into talking about the 90s sort of gear with you. Um, absolutely. Oh, I'm, not, I'm nowhere near there. I'm still in the 80s now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's cool. That's, but yeah, the um, the SQ10s, yeah, that's definitely known to me, the uh, the sequencer. Um, yeah, just like analog steps, isn't yeah, it? To yeah, create yeah. A, is it 16 yeah. step or 8 step? Uh, it's 12, actually, would you believe, which is totally weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah, and then we got the MS-20 to go with it, and then I got an MS-10 to go with it, and then, you know, things just, just were building on, and then we got our first drum machine, which was the very first one was a TR-606. Oh, nice. Very basic. And then uh, and then the next uh, uh, set of problems arise, well, came about, which was basically, hang on, that 606 can sequence itself, 
and we've got that SQ10, but how do we sync them together? Because that doesn't got a bindi din sync, that hasn't got a din sync on it, that's got a different type of CV get just and then this kind of bollocks started happening. So we had to start finding ways to sync sync stuff together, and it was just a nightmare, but really good fun. Yeah, definitely. I think it was a bit of um a bit of a wild west in the early days, wasn't it, in terms of synchronizing gear? Because yeah, you had the din sync. It's, it's, sometimes CV. it wasn't even possible. So sometimes we just literally like beat mix like we do when we DJing, just literally can't try and keep it together by tweaking the tempos up and down and just record 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 and as soon as it as soon as it missed cut that bit of tape out and, and, and then replace it with a bit that was in sync stuff like that that's how nuts it was i mean if you imagine that now with all the all the software and all the hard disk space in the world that you could possibly need imagine the stuff we went through back then it was just it's, but there was never so much fun had as like being in a in a in a in a, in a i mean now i'm talking already in the 90s when i was in the studio with a reel-to-reel tape machine there's no more, no more fun to be had than, than than recording 30 minutes of jam sort of sequences running along and tweaking it and chucking effects on and off and muting things in and out and then cutting the tape down to five minutes to, to cut it down to an actual arranged track. That's just the best fun in the world. It took ages, but <laughs> really good fun. Yeah, I do have I do have like a sentimental um sentimental connection to to those processes you know and the idea of um really crafting something physically you know like there's some there's something to be said for doing that i think well it's just a whole different approach i mean back then there was no there was there wasn't any other way to do it so you just had to do what you did i mean often now you think you think back about it and you think oh i'd love to work like that again but you know you never will because it takes so much bloody time to do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you can't you're not gonna you know i can edit this in cubis or in pro tools or in ableton whatever in like two seconds or i can get my tape machine out and spend four hours cutting it up so yeah you know we, but it's just you know once you've been there it also it's a way of thinking about how arrangement works as well definitely if you're not used to not used to having to go through all that process um you, you have a, well, a different vision of, of, of how to arrange things and I, I i always liked approaching it from like that live just just just, just having fun with it, feeling it on the fly, as 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 live bands do when they're playing live together, when they're jamming together, going go, going with the with, with the vibe on the fly, and then cutting down all the best bits, as opposed to thinking what should happen next, just really feeling what should happen next. I mean, you do a bit of both in both circumstances, I know, but it's just a very natural way of doing it when when you have to do it live. Basically, you have to record it all as it's happening, otherwise, you don't get the result that you need. Definitely. And I'd love to speak to you about that, about that process of, of making uh, techno tracks um, live on a, like on a desk. Um, mm. What would be what would be your setup in that situation? Like how would that? Well, well as many about? as many drum machines as we could find, which would be <laughs> the 808, the 909, the 606. Uh, when we were when we had when we were in the RNS studio, of course, we were spoiled rotten for things like that because we had well, we had the whole Roland series. Um, uh, we had, um, well, a whole range of other drum machines as well. And even means to sync them all up somehow with like KMS 30s and things, whatever, you know, MIDI to CV gate and MIDI to DIN sync converters and all that. So, but what we would generally be on the, on the goal would at least be a 909, an 808, usually at some point a 303. And, uh, and then in the early days on the, uh, in the studio, we had an Atari, of course. Nice. Which uh, had, had the first phase, version of Cubase on it, which wasn't even called Cubase. It was called Pro 24. Wow. And it was horrible. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it didn't even have, you know, 
it didn't have an arrangement window. It was literally just like blocks of, it was static. There was nothing moving on the screen, if you see what I mean. Hmm. So it was, it was it, I mean, it was the very first one. So, but then came Cubase 1.0 and then we had, we had the, you know, the arrangement window. It was only MIDI, of course, no audio recordable, but you know, it was, it was, it was at least gave you some control and, and, and you could see what was where your arrangement was going. You could see, oh, that's the string. That's the, that's the baseline. That's that. Oh, I want that there. I want that there. You could, you had, uh, you, well, you could see it basically. It was the first time you had a visual of, of your arrangement, which was a brilliant new, a brilliant new tool site. <laughs> we can see what we're doing. I can see that. So that was good. Yeah. So the pro twenty was good. And then we, go on. I was going to say we used to combine those two, those two, because sequencing in, in on the Atari was new and it was also limited because the machine itself didn't have much power. It was like one megabyte or something. I did had to play with, even though it was only MIDI, it still filled up pretty quickly and said, "I'm I'm can't, I'm, I'm stuck here. I haven't got any more juice." <laughs> so we used to combine as much as we could the MIDI the MIDI arrangement and still jam along with that. If you see what I mean. So we'd have as, as little as possible coming out of the Atari. Try and use as many separate sequences uh, for uh, analog sequences as we had. And then the Atari only for things that we really needed it for is not to overload its pure little, its, its puny little processor. That's amazing, man. I love the idea that you were like overloading the MIDI buffer on the Atari ST. That's like, that's oh, very, very quickly, very quickly as well. Yeah. Nice. I think a lot of people swore by the, the ST, didn't they, for like timing clock? Oh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's there's still nothing beats like a, a proper good analog sequencer like that's like tight tight totally tight but um i mean that's nitpicking isn't it nowadays i mean you, i mean i, I wouldn't like i said I, it was really nice to have a very tight hardware but it's also really nice to have a laptop that's got like 19 studios in it all in one you know what i mean uh yeah. If you compare now to now nowadays to back then, I don't think I'd swap right away again. I'm quite happy, <laughs> quite happy with that right now. That's cool, man. Yeah, I do remember randomly picking up um, a sampler of someone in the early 2000s, and it turned out to be K Classes Studio. All oh, right, which sample was that? Oh, it was the S3200. Actually, it was two. It was the S3200 and the CD3000i, I think it was. Um, right. So yeah, but I remember going to their studio and just being wowed by all the synths and all the gear. But uh, And then also, even in 2000, you know, early 2000, they still had the Atari ST to run the show. Like, <laughs> I've still got one. I've still got one. I don't use it anymore, but I've still got one. I've still got it. As you mentioned there, you, you, you had access to the RNS studio and you released um, loads of uh, seminal tracks for them. What was it like working for RNS? Uh, so yeah, I guess what was that studio like, and what was it like oh, working with RNS? Well, well, firstly there were several along the way because I was at RNS from like eighty nine, I think it was, till about ninety five. So over the six years, there was three different studios. I mean, built around the same gear, but it moved around and gear got added and stuff. And uh, the very first one where I actually met Cisco Ferreira for the very first day I walked in, he was sat there, he was about, I think I was 17 and he was 18. Nice. And we were just, and Renat introduced me. Uh, I literally, the first day I'd met Renat as well, I went to see Renat and uh, to talk, because he, he'd called me because he'd heard a, a cassette tape of mine on some pirate radio station <laughs> of some some uh, some tracks that I'd made. 
And he said, oh, well, can we have a chat? Do you fancy coming down to the studio? I was like, uh, yeah, I think I think I do. Yeah, I think I'll be there. <laughs> and uh, we had this little chat. And then he said, I'll take you to the studio. Introduced me to Cisco. And he said, uh, all right, why don't you guys get acquainted and uh, give me a call and I'll come back and see you later. And that, I think it was two o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. And we called him Sunday evening. <laughs> we, just been, we just didn't start. We just started chatting and then started tweaking. But just the machines. I mean, I've never seen machines like this. I've heard of some of them. He had an emulator sampler, oh, wow, an emulator nice. three with a new Depeche Mode had. And I was like, oh, my God, this machine. I'm, I mean, cost more than a house. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> and I'm what, I can touch it? You know, I mean, I'm actually allowed to press the buttons on it. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, yeah, I just didn't want to leave. I was hooked immediately. And Cisco was obviously sound blog, so we, uh, we, we we kicked it off immediately. And we just we just sat there all night and had a lot of fun. And then Renard came back the next day. He said, uh, well, did you have fun? I said, yeah, we did. He said, do you want to stay? I said, yes, please. <laughs> That's and then amazing. he signed me up and that was it. And, oh, man, I mean, just that, literally, just the, my jaw hit the floor that first day when I walked in and I saw all that gear. I mean, a mixing desk for a start. He had this big... Wow, a big 32-channel mixing desk. I've never seen anything like that before, you know. And uh, like I said, all the drum machines you could imagine. And then and then especially in this Emulator 3, that was a big deal for me because, I mean, I, I was really into some into things like the art of noise and I'd seen them and, and, and like Herbie Hancock with his Fairlight and stuff like that. And I really loved what they were doing with, with this creative way of sampling and how you could how you could make completely new sounds by, 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 jamming two bricks together or something or whatever, or, mm. or opening a, a cork and seeing how that sounds and then playing with it, all those kind of things. But then with an emulator, not only could you sample, but you had like analog filters on a sampler, which is which even nowadays is almost like, well, ridiculous and cool. Yeah, but that was, in the, Absolutely. that was in the 80s. Yeah, but that's why the thing cost more than a truck. You know what <laughs> I mean? It was, it was expensive. Yeah, so we had, we had a secret weapon that like other studios didn't have. Most studios had an Akai S1000 back then or a 900 even, uh, which was a cool machine and a very good, a very good sampler, but it had none of that fancy stuff. Like, well, the filters and the, and the velocity to sample start functions and little things like that, that used to, you know, I mean, just do really cool, really cool things for me. Yeah. That is so, a good feat. That is a good function, isn't it? When you can set. Oh man, I had so much velocity. fun with it. Cause I think that's I one would, thing. Go on. I would just say I would sample like a minute of like of me uh, twiddling and tweaking on a Moog. That'd be like a memory Moog, and I just I just literally press a key for a minute and tweak every knob I could tweak on it, and then play that whole sample back in mid with 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 a MIDI sequence, but with different velocities, and then that velocity to sample start setting, yeah. and you just it just got it just got weird, and it was lovely. That was so yeah. Because I think I've always appreciated that in your work when listening back, um, I, you could just hear the like hear the automation happening sort of from a geeky point of view just be like wow there's so much stuff happening within those there's so many like little details in in what you're doing well it is it is geeky and it is nerdy that's the thing but i just used to love crawling into those machines and just making them do exactly what i wanted them to do yeah and basically overproducing lots of times and and being too perfectionist about it and sometimes killing it and sometimes ruining it and you know what i mean but it's just it's just the way I've always enjoyed doing it, and sometimes it's worked well, but sometimes it hasn't. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely saying it in a way of like it, you almost were able to make the synth sort of organic in a way. You know, they sort of breathe, lived and breathed in your tracks much more to me than 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 like a lot of electronic music that was out then. You know. Well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's all just gut feeling, basically. There's no more I can say than that. It's just literally what what felt right at the time is just what you do. 
That's incredible, man. And and so yeah, Cisco, you worked with on was it a couple of albums? How many albums did you work with? Uh, well, 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 we sort of worked on and off together because uh, basically at that moment in time, uh, we were the only two people who who really well knew how to work that studio. So really? when other people wow. would come in, we'd be engineering for them as well. Like Dave Clark would come in as a young kid, and then we'd do some engineering for Dave Clark. Joey Beltram came in, and we'd be producing Dave Angel and all these people. I mean, wow. the whole line there. All those people were coming in, and eventually, then Cisco left. Cisco went somewhere else, and eventually, it was just me doing all those other jobs for other people as well. Because they would come in and they would say, "Well, I'll, 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 I'll do it all myself." But then they'd see the studio, they'd be like, "Oh, how do you work an emulator? How do you work? <laughs> how do you work that Moog? How do you?" Well, that's, all right, I'll stick around then, and we just end up hanging out and just and doing it all together. So that's how I got to know all these guys as well, really well in the beginning. That was good fun. That's incredible, just, man. I, everybody everybody just about some moment in time must have been in that studio i mean everybody from like uh jeff mills to one atkins to well, well literally like i said dev clark laurent garnier uh prodigy guy everybody at some point popped in morby fx um at some point somebody uh, almost anybody that was anybody had, had something to do with rns or was, was was around just 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 to hang out or whatever I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that studio, man. Must have been absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, all and seven then, producers. Then, then he moved the studio. He bought a, he bought a grotty old house, but in a very cool location, which was like there's a, a, a this was in Ghent. This is a small a little small city in, in in Belgium called Ghent, and there's a river that goes through Ghent called the Layer. The Layer at a certain point splits in half. And then uh, splits into two two rivers for about a mile, and then comes together again. And he bought this house right in the middle of the split, so it was on a little island, literally nice. on a little island between these two rivers. So he called, of called it, of course, Techno Island. <laughs> <laughs> but the house, the house was well, it was a dump basically in the beginning. But it had a studio in it with an emulator, so who cares? But I literally lived there. I lived there, so I just lived in that studio. Like I said, the rest of the house, I think it was mushrooms growing out of the wall. It was just, it was horrible. It was really needed renovating. But that one room with, uh, with all the gear in it, nice and warm, and just, well, I just, I think I spent about four years in that room. Really? Wow. Yeah. So I only used to come out to go and get pizzas or to go to the nightclub and DJ or whatever. But... <laughs> And how did you how do you find that like where is do you have a particular like where are you where are you sort of most comfortable are you, are you do you like being in the studio do or I guess a better question is like do you enjoy DJing live do you like playing your stuff live uh, it's not well actually the first question is a good question because it because I enjoy both I enjoy I really enjoy DJing I enjoy playing live I enjoy all those things but I am more comfortable in the studio I'm not a natural stage person I'm I am naturally actually quite shy and I always think oh god i hope i'm doing the right thing i'm like, oh it's just this what they want to hear oh shit oh shit like this and yet the whole time i'm banging it out and it's that's all yeah. going mental and i'm sitting there having a panic attack for two hours and then when it's over i think god that was brilliant is it over already <laughs> it's like every time i mean i'm dreading going on stage 10 minutes before anything even for a dj gig for a live show is live shows are even worse uh, i get even more nervous but mm. and then once I'm on there, I'm actually once I'm once I'm playing, I'm not nervous. I'm having a good time, but I'm questioning it, questioning it the whole time. Whether I'm, you know, am I, am I, am is this, is this, is this really what they want? Is this, you know, I'm always just too concerned about it. And then when it, like I said, when it's finished, and I look back at it, and I think, oh, what the hell was I worried about? It was brilliant. It was yeah, and everyone's that. going nuts. Everyone's really sweaty, telling you the best DJ in the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
but That's also cool. being very conscious about being of having all eyes on you as well and not being like i mean i'm I always, I was, I've always enjoyed dancing in nightclubs as well, but I've always been shy about that as well. I always found a dark little corner to dance in, as opposed to under the big spotlight. You know what I mean? Mm. So, um, so weird. yeah, it's weird. It's weird for me to have had a stage career. At some, whereas actually, I, I, I would naturally veer away from it. And also, I have a fear of flying. So imagine that. <laughs> I had to fly all over the planet. Uh, not being happy on an airplane and then and then being and then being nervous about getting on stage so that's how my weekends have been for the last 30 years wow man and and when you say fear of fly, flying like how what sort of level are you at oh well i do i, I get on obviously so i get on the airplanes and I, it's, it's basically it's turbulence it's it's that when it gets to when it gets bumpy uh i didn't used to when i was when i was young i didn't but i i, I think i started getting worse the first time i flew to australia in 91 or 92 and I think it was the first time I'd been out of outside of Europe, um, and also the first time I'd been over the equator. And we flew over India and over the Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean uh, during monsoon. Mm-hmm. And then we had four hours of severe. Well, it's I call it severe. In my mind, it was severe. The pilot probably couldn't give a toss, but it <laughs> felt like severe, severe turbulence. And I was just bricking it for four hours because all it was dark. And all I could see was like this, well, like explosions underneath the plane, which was basically lightning. But if you've not seen lightning from above, it looks pretty frightening when it's underneath your airplane. And if you and you can see on the little TV screen that you've still got four hours of ocean before you get anywhere near any land. Yeah, and, I can understand and, that. And, and, and it just doesn't stop bumping all the way. And even the pilot starts apologizing. And there's no more drink service or anything. It's, and that was all the first time. And since then... Uh, I've just always been a nervous flyer. I've just always anticipated more, more turbulence, even, you know, so, so I'm not terrible. I'm all right. I get on the planes. I, I do it, but I, I'd rather, I, I, I'm more comfortable on a train. Right. Like that. Oh, that's cool. We, I guess you can get around Europe quite easily on trains. We're quite well connected. But you can now because the trains are faster than the planes, but you couldn't in the back in the nineties, it would, it was a pretty, it was pretty hard. You better, you were better off flying. Hmm. But now, yeah, now the, the, the TG, the TGVs, the high speed trains are brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, going back to that, the list of people that you mentioned sort of rocked up to the RNS studio, um, it sort of reminds me of, um, I mean, a few of those artists you ended up remix, you've remixed for. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, The Prodigy, uh, No Good Start the Dance, that's one you did a yeah. museum mix of that, right? Yeah, which, yeah, well, I did that one. Actually, the reason I called it that is because I did that in David Morley's studio. David Morley was also an RNS artist. Right. And uh, uh, he had a few hits in the beginning here. I don't know if you know the track Brazil uh, Spectrum. I saw That's it on David a list Morley. today, but I didn't yeah. play it. I don't know, but I will check it out. That was massive back then. That was a massive, massive club hit in like 1989, 1990. But David uh, got, uh, well, he uh, developed uh, diabetes very young. And he was told he had to stay away. He had to stay away from the nightlife. Uh, he had to be in bed on time. He had to inject himself every day. And from that from that instant, he just flipped his career. Just flipped from dance music into ambient and into uh, strange. You know, what well, he just he just went to this whole different vibe. Really cool stuff he does, by the way. But to go with that, he also started collecting old modular synths. Wow! And I had to do this prodigy remix and. Um, um, I called him up and I said, David, I said, I haven't seen you for a while. How are you doing? Blah, blah. I'm doing this remix for the Prodigy. And I know you've got some cool gear. I wouldn't mind, you know. He said, oh, yeah, come and do it here. Wow. And I, I mean, I mean I'm how old was I then? I think that was probably 96, 97. I don't know. So I was, I was in the, I'd been in the business myself for about eight or nine years. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. But I walked into David's studio and I didn't know what I, I did. Well, I, I didn't know anything. It was all machines I'd never seen before. Yeah, where's your Atari? Like, <laughs> yeah, he didn't, oh, he didn't even have a computer. It was, but he was like, well, they're old Moogs and all, Moogs and all kinds of modular systems, Buchler and Surge and all kinds of really cool stuff that I know of now. Really, I've never seen in my life before then. So, like, likewise, when 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 people were coming to the Arnest Studio and I had to engineer for them, I said, David, you're going to have to engineer for me because I don't know what the hell I'm doing in this place. <laughs> but I like it. So we had fun in there. So that's why so that place literally was a museum. In fact, I think Kraftwerk would have been impressed by that room. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Buchla stuff's beautiful. Um, just looks it nice is. to look at, you know. It, aside from what it actually does. Um, yeah, but um, I even saw there's a. There's a video of the Prodigy playing in Athens live. I've seen it. I've They're seen it. They're playing your track. I've seen it. I know. I know. That's How? pretty cool. Yeah. I actually only saw that. I only saw that about a year ago. So I haven't known that for a long time. I only recently discovered that myself when somebody posted it on Facebook. Well, well, it, you know, I, I was, I'm honoured. I'm honoured to be well. I'm, I think that's very cool. I mean, it does kind of point out that there was sort of playback in a bit because <laughs> I, 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 never, I never sent them the parts to it, but... But cool! I was really honoured that they they would they would consider that. Well, I was thinking that like it had been remade for the Roland W thirty. I think that's what Liam Howlett used. Um, maybe it was later. Maybe it was a bit later than that. But that's amazing. I've never seen the Prodigy playing live, and they're not playing a Prodigy track before. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, technically, it is it is a Prodigy track, but I mean, it's it, yeah, it's their song. It's just my version of that. Yeah, yeah, and it's like seriously going off. Like it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a good little clip there. Yeah. Amazing man, and then yeah, you also uh, lush for Orbital remixed yeah. uh, Tori Amos, Utah Saints, yeah. Wizards of the Sonic. I didn't know you'd done a remix of this until very recently, uh, man. Uh, I don't even remember that. Who's that again? Is that is Wizards that... of the Sonic? Oh, it was um, Westbound. Westbound. That's it. Westbound versus yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was, yeah. You know, honestly, I can't remember half of them because I did I did do a lot of remixes at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, you mentioned some of the, of, the, of the more famous bands, but I did a lot. I really did a lot. I can't remember most. Of, well, a lot of them I can't remember. I can't remember some of the some of the tracks I put out because I used a lot of pseudonyms as well. Um, I can't remember some of them, my own stuff. <laughs> so yeah. It's always really exciting when somebody posts something and and they go, "Hang on, is that me?" Oh, oh fuck, yeah, yeah, it is me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I literally can't remember the tune, but then when I hear it, it all comes back. Yeah, um, I mean that list. That list really did go on with more sort of massive artists like Depeche Mode. Uh, you did a James Bond theme, the Moby remix. Oh, that was well. I remixed Moby's James Bond theme. Moby Moby wrote the theme. Oh, well, it was Moby's version of the James Bond theme, and I then remixed his his version. But that all came out on a, on a, on a well on an album release of it. Yeah. I mean, and as someone who's a complete sort of novice in releasing records, because I've never actually done it, how how do those remixes come about? And what are the sort of, do you have conversations with the artists about what you're going to do? Sometimes, sometimes it's just, it's, it's all record company stuff. Sometimes it's literally, it's your mate who gives you a call and says, do you want to remix my track? Mate? You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, we'd like Depeche Mode. I never got to speak to Depeche Mode, which is a damn shame because I would have loved, of course, but that didn't, I just got, I just got a phone call, um, 
from the publisher saying, look, we're doing remixes of this track for Depeche Mode. Are you interested? We'd really like you to do a version of it. Well, hell yeah, of course I'm going to remix Depeche Mode. Um, kind of, I'd rather I'd rather choose a couple of songs myself than I can remix, but I'll remix anything by Depeche Mode, of course. Uh, yeah, and I would, like with Tori Amos, I didn't get to meet or speak with Tori. She, I just got literally the same the phone call, basically saying, look, uh, you and Carl Craig, was it? I think Carl Craig did a version as well, a remix as well. Uh, no, uh, no, yeah, it was Carl Craig and Armin van Helden. Uh, no, Armin van Helden was a different song. It was a different song. Uh, but anyway, whatever. Uh, again, was a phone call. But then certain people, uh, obviously the people I know, people when I remix stuff of or, or, or Dave Angel or Cisco stuff, it's a phone call. And it's like Cisco saying, look, hey, do you want to do, do this? But like most of the big bands, it was just literally publishers that do it. But it was always, it, I've, I've never, apart from one time, asked anybody, can I remix you? It's always the other way. You always get asked to do a remix. I, I asked somebody once because it was one of my all-time favorite tunes when I was like 13 or 14. It's like a Canadian band called uh, Rational Youth. Wow. Sort of a Canadian Canadian craftwork kind of thing like back in the 70s and 80s. And they had this song called Le Meilleur des Mondes, The Best of the Worlds. And uh, it was one of those things that inspired me when I was, when I think I was about 13 or 14 to get, really get into the synth stuff, to really start doing it myself. I was always, like I said, faffing with my organs and stuff like that, but really to start taking it very seriously. I think that band really gave me that extra push. And then years later, when internet came about and stuff like that, I found a, a website of them and there was a, a, an email link. So I just I just clicked the link and I said, hi guys, my name's CJ, this is blah, blah, blah. I've just got to say a massive thank you for all the work and inspiring me to do this and that. And then they emailed me straight back saying, CJ, you know us? <laughs> we're, we're huge fans, man. And I'm like, what, you know me? No, this is getting weird. <laughs> and I said, look, I said, seriously, that tune, Le Mer de Mont, just like meant, meant everything to me. I said, I'd, I'd love to remix it. And I said, oh, well, we'd be honored. So yeah, did it. Incredible, man. Incredible. It's nice when you get that sort of spark to like, I think I can do something with that. Like, um, yeah. That's incredible, man. And I guess really the thing is though, the thing is though, a lot of the remixes that I did weren't always appreciated by the people I did them for because I would generally get asked to do a remix and they would want me to do a dance dance floor version. Right. But I only do dance floor version when I think it feels like something that it's something needs that or something sounds like a Tori Amos. I didn't do a dance floor version for version. I did what I what I sound what sounded good to me. Same with Depeche Mode, uh, the Prodigy. I did do a dance floor version because that track just screams dance floor. You know, I mean, yeah. so that makes sense, <laughs> uh, but not always. And and oftentimes, I mean, not that not not that people were annoyed or whatever, but I would get certain feedback from certain record labels saying, "Oh, uh, oh could you not be, be, make it a bit more this, a bit more that, a bit more dancing?" And I said, "Well, look, I said I could do it. I could I could give it a bash, but I really like what's happening. Oh, we'll play it to the band. Oh, it's all right. We'll put it out like this." And then it would get a B side in the Carl Craig version. We get an A side because that was a dance floor thing, and that's what they wanted in the first place. If you see what I mean. I mean, not that that was a big deal, but I, I felt that sometimes I know Orbital went too keen on the remix I did for them because they, they didn't think it was dancey enough or whatever. Um, but I, I just really liked that remix. You know, I just really like like the, the feel I got out of it. That's what I wanted to hear. I, I would fucking dance myself apeshit to that. But I mean, it's uh, <laughs> maybe not everybody. But there you go. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to hear the the sort of the what goes on behind the scenes because we yeah mostly just it's, it's mainly what goes on in my my head basically, which might all just be bollocks. So don't take it all too seriously. Yeah, I think we're all we're all guilty of that, aren't we? We all yeah. tell ourselves mad stories <laughs> that, that are totally irrational. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I mean, going into your your own stuff, um, sort of moving on from the remixes. Um, yeah, five albums you've released. Um, well, yeah, as as my as as uh, as my as CJ. Yeah, Bollinger. exactly. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some huge tracks on on there, like on on those albums. Um, uh, the couple. I, how, I don't know how to pronounce car. car. How do you pronounce? Well, in English, you would say Camarg. Uh, in it's actually pronounced Camarg. Because it's a it's a, it's a place in the south of France, right? Wow! And it's a place in the south of France where I went skinny dipping, right? <laughs> and and <laughs> skinny windsurfing. <laughs> wow! With a, with That's a, a bold with move. a then girlfriend, so I had a good time there, basically. Uh, and, I know, and I came back and home and wrote that randomly wrote that tune that had nothing to do with that place, but thought it felt like that that vibe that I had there just felt there was something nice about it that I connected to that to that area. Nice place, go check it out. Gamarg. I will, man. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of one of the most heralded RNS releases of all time, isn't it? Um, uh, yeah, I looked at like a top 10 list of RNS records, and I think it's number three in the all time. What? Um, but yeah, Who's the profits. Who's above you? Good oh, question. More, more. I think, oh, off the top of my head, I, I Outland of the Vamps got to be up there. Oh, I would Plastic like Dreams, that, Plastic that, Dreams, number plastic two. Plastic Dreams. Joey Belcham, Energy Flash. Yeah, Joey Belcham, oh, Energy Flash. AFX Didgeridoo, yeah. come on, man. Oh, man. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just remembering how many seriously classic tunes were on RNS, but it's insane. Yeah, well, I was looking at, uh, you did an Essential Mix in 1994, I think. Yep. Yep. And I was just looking at the track list on that, like just dribbling at like all the, all the, all the artists, including your own work that's in there, you know, Aphex Twin, yeah. um, Orbital, RAC as well. RAC, who's now, I mean, that guy's still making, I think he's Grammy, he's won some Grammys, hasn't he, RAC now? Luke Slater, Plastic Man, Jones and Stevenson, The First Rebirth. Just so many great records, man. Yeah. Love your essential mix from night four. I just have to say that. I've listened yeah. to it for years. <laughs> I'll have to listen to that back, actually. I don't remember it. I'll have to give that a listen. Yeah, Tower of Nefertali. Nefertali, yeah. Yes. Well, that, that, Nefertali, that, that, that's, yeah. that's the last album I did for RNS. That was Electronic Highway. That was the last one I did for RNS. And uh, I don't know how that came about, but RNS was slightly changing its its mood. And he, I mean, he had um, he was he was getting very into breakbeats and and more drum and bassy vibe about him. Uh, he was signing a lot of the UK stuff at the time, and uh, and also he had his label Apollo, which was an ambient label which was huge. There was a lot of really great stuff on there that I really liked. And I was just inspired by by a lot of the Apollo stuff, but at the same time, all this breakbeat stuff that was going on. And I, that's just that that, that album, that uh, Electronic Highway, really became sort of a, a crossover between those styles. Not Again, not at all very dance floor uh, worthy, not, not, nothing really on that album that, that really got played much out in clubs, but it was just one of those that I really enjoyed working on. Just that I really, really had a good time, and I still have a good time. It's one of one of probably one of my albums that I listen back the most myself. Yeah, I love it too, man. When you mentioned your friend Dave Morley was into like ambient stuff, yeah. I wonder whether was he anything was he involved with any of that album? Uh, I think actually, yeah, he was on one of the tracks. Definitely, uh, I think yeah, he was. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I mean, it, it, I mean it involved. He was definitely also. I was definitely inspired by all along the way, and also. Uh, Gary Jensen, uh, what was his uh, bias, biosphere? The Norwegian guy who, who lives, what, he's like 400 kilometers above the North Pole Circle. So he has six months of darkness every year. 
Can you imagine? Is he? Yeah, yeah, he's right. It's what? From Tromsø, Tromsø, which is literally, uh, it's it's that, well, it's 400 kilometers above the North Pole Circle. I've been there once and it's it's beautiful, but it's like, now that's properly, I mean, I'm from the North. I'm from I'm from Stockton, I'm from Teesside, but that's mm-hmm. not the North. Tromsø is the North. That's like <laughs> 3,000 miles further. Um, yeah, and like I said, I, mean, I was there in the summertime, so it was just, it was just, so, it was just, so it was dead. It was just day all the time. The sun doesn't go down. But can you imagine six months of darkness? That must that must be mental. And also, even in like, yeah, even in the, in the, in the six months of light, it's like most mostly still white around you, because there's mountain ranges. They're all white all year round. But even even the, just at ground level, I think there's only like two or three months where it's literally not frozen over. So it's like well, it's like living in the North Alaska. Something like that. So, like living on the moon or something. Well, he's well, pretty much. So that you totally understand his music when you go and see where he actually lives and writes it. And it's like, I mean, it's the same. Like the first time I landed in Miami, I suddenly totally understood rap and and and, and R and B and stuff happening. I saw like if I lived there and I was sat by that blue beach, you know, by, the, by that blue water on that white beach by that blue water, I'd be I'd be writing that shit as well. I wouldn't be writing that dark fucking evil acid stuff what was that all about <laughs> i only write now because i live in a country where it rains every day and it's always bloody cold yeah and what sort of places around the world that you've been to um do you like like what sort of what sort of in places well i mean i mean i've been I've, I've, you. apart from the being on the way on the airplanes bit that i didn't like as much as you already told you but I've, i do love traveling and being places i've always loved being in the usa or being a big fan of traveling around america but my most favorite place has always been Australia, uh, largely because of the people and uh, one person in particular, Richie, uh, Richard McNeil, Richard McNeil pretty much uh, runs the, 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 the festival scene there now, the dance festival scene. But he started oh, wow. with, with small venues. He started doing parties in small clubs. He started booking me and literally booked me every single year from about the middle of December till the end of February. And he would tour me all around Australia and New Zealand and whatever. And I just skip winters i'd just be there <laughs> and, and, it, and it, every year his events got bigger and bigger up to a point and then after even like at the end of the 90s i sort of took a, well, a substantial break from techno and formed a band with a, mate, a belgian mate of mine and we started a band uh singer songwriting stuff and i just literally walked away from techno but still the guy in australia would book me on his massive big techno events and I just kept going back. So Australia's, well, literally, I mean, I, the only reason I never actually decided to stay there and just live there is because it's so bloody far away. I'd have to take that long-ass flight all the time to come and see me, mum and dad or my family or whatever. Yeah. And I just thought, I just can't hack that flight doing that like two or three times, a, a, well, even a year, let alone several times a month or whatever. That's just too big. So It's a long way, yeah. It's bloody miles away. <laughs> but it's once you there, it's brilliant. What was that side project? What was the name of that band that you? Uh, Magnus. You Magnus. Uh, we did that from 2000 uh, onwards till uh, 2000. We actually quit that band in 2018, uh, and the, it's it's well, it's mainly uh, me and uh, a guy called Tom Barman, and Tom Barman is also the the lead singer and songwriter of the band Deus. Now Deus is is Belgium's probably biggest rock band, 
really? wow. alternative rock band, let's say. That the, the, like, but but they well, they're huge. They're huge. They, they they do world tours all the time. And he's uh, he he, he uh, is into well electro as, as much as he's his rock his rock music. And he was uh, DJing one night at this event that um, that had several locations. It was like an event that was spread over five locations. And I was playing in one, and he was playing somewhere else. And one of my mates said, hey, when you finish, shall we go and see Tom Barman DJ? And I said, Tom Barman, the, what, the rock guy, the, the singer-songwriter? What, he's, what, he's DJing? Like, oh, no, that's going to be horrible. <laughs> oh, no, oh, well, let's just go and check it out. Just go for a laugh. And we went down, and he was playing really funky, really wicked, not techno, but electro, like really bouncy stuff. And I was like, God, this is really good. What the hell? Couldn't mix to save his life, but it was brilliant music. <laughs> so I was really having a good time, really boogieing then, then to this guy. I thought, I go and introduce myself when he's finished. But then suddenly he dropped one of my tunes, played one of my records. But it ain't going to be me, which is like a breakbeat thing I did for Pete Tong back in the day uh, on FFRR records. And uh, he played that. So I went straight up and introduced myself. And he said, oh, brilliant. Oh, this is you. Oh, this, I love this tune. Hey, give us your phone number. I've got to give you a call. I want to ask you something. I want to hang out. And he called me the next day and he said, basically, look, I've been thinking about it for over a year now. I want to do something in your field. I want to do something with electro, but still song-based, you know, but but just, you know, with somebody out of your out of your score, out of your field. And I, uh, he said, can we meet up? And I said, well, I've, I've got a studio. Come and hang out. We'll, we'll have a chat about it. And then he did. And I said, look, you've come at a really good time because I'm actually sick to death of making, I'm sitting in my studio on my own, writing techno tunes. This is really cool. And then before I knew it, he was inviting people in, guitar players, piano players, violin players, everything. And it suddenly my, my eyes opened up to this whole new level of working in the studio with actual musicians, apart from programming everything on your own and just sitting there on your own. So this was a whole new thing and I just got into it. I'll send you some, I'll send you some clips, send you some stuff. I would love to hear it. Yeah, I would love to. I just, it's just such a sort of... Um... Uh, quite an inspiring connection that you sort of randomly went to go and see him yeah. and then he played one of your tracks and then he was looking for yeah it just it you know just, it a, all, a, a, an electronic producer and it, he happened to find cj bolland it was you know. all right time right place and it clicked i mean that's I'm, I'm, we still work together now because i actually I've, since then i've also been producing his rock band and that's where that's why i didn't get back till well at past six today because i'm in the studio with him working on working on days working on his new album so oh, fantastic yeah. man you mentioned uh, it ain't going to be me there, which yeah. which um, is yeah, that was um, a huge record. You said Pete Tong, you did that for Pete Tong. Well, basically, well, what happened was I uh, after RNS in ninety five slash ninety six, um, um, I, uh, I I sort of followed Cisco again, Cisco Ferreira, who had already signed to a UK label called uh, Internal, and Internal was a sub label of uh, FFRR record, which was pretty much my well Pete Tong's label. But when I signed to Internal, Internal was, was run by two guys, Ben and Christian, who were really into the techno, really knew what was going on and really loved what we were doing. Like I said, they signed, they signed the Advent, Cisco Ferreira, they signed the Drum Club, they signed a couple other techno bands. Um, and, uh, and Orbital, obviously Orbital was on there, wasn't it? Orbital, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, um, I, did my, I did my album for them, which uh, had the profit on there. The Sugar, we, had, we had a massive hit, a complete fluke hit with, with Sugary Sweeter. Which I didn't see coming. I was uh, I wasn't even going to play them the tune. It was just it was a really? point, well. If originally it was an instrumental thing, it was me having some fun with some breakbeats, and it was instrumental. And then a friend of mine came up, came around to the studio, Nikki, 
who uh, I don't know if you know the band Praga Khan, which is a big, oh, yeah, a, yeah, big yeah, Belgian, yeah. a big Belgian rare band from the 90s, who was the, the lead vocalist of Praga Khan, well, a good friend of mine, popped by the studio. I said, well, what are you doing? What are you working on? I said, oh, I played her some, played some of the techno. I played her this instrumental breakbeat tune. And she said, oh, that's brilliant. Why don't I do something on that? And I said, what do you mean? Do something on that. I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do some lyrics to it. And I said, well, all right then. Uh, Where's your microphone? I said, well, I haven't got a microphone. I've never needed one. <laughs> I said, well, well, what can we do then? I said, oh, well, why don't we plug plug the headphones into the sampler? The headphones, I mean, we can work, work bi-directional. We can we can use them as 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 a microphone. So we did. Genius idea. Well, it was it was the only idea. It was either that or she, oh, oh, never mind. Then we won't bother. Um, so so we recorded them into the sampler, and then it just basically it, it was it all in one take, and it's just that song. And I, and I like I said I, I just thought they're not gonna like this they're not gonna know what I'm what, what this is not what they signed me for and he said well that's all I like all this techno stuff you got anything anything else going on anything anything more single mind and I said well, well not really I said oh I have got this one song with some lyrics on it oh let's hear it and he said you're shitting us aren't you that that's that's brilliant <laughs> we, we, we totally want to put this out as a single and then they had Armand Van Helden remix it. And then yeah, it just went yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I was used to used to being in in in, in techno charts and stuff like that, and and, and I was I, I knew how to please a, a techno crowd on the dance floor, but I'd never never been dreamt I'd be anywhere near anything like the charts, like the top forty, top of the pops, and things like that. And it even went that Billboard number one in, in the in the in the Billboard dance chart in the states. I mean, that was just insane. So yeah, so that, that 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 all you know that sort of changed the whole momentum in a big way, and then what happened, and then it all got a bit weird. Of course, it was all too good to be true. Um, ben and Christian from Internal got a better offer somewhere else. Left Internal Records just got dissolved, and the mothership FFRR uh, sucked up uh, Orbital and myself. Dropped Cisco because it was too underground for FFRR. Dropped the drum mm. because they were too underground for FFRR. But I just had a hit, and Orbital had, 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 had some hits. So we got we we were suddenly signed to FFRR Records, and suddenly I was answering to Pete Tong and not to Ben and Christian, which right, wow. which which is, is a nice bloke. That's all fine. We got on, but obviously we have a well a slightly different view on 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 the music that you know he, he was wanting to put out more sugary sweeter singles and i wasn't writing them because it was just a one-off thing i just mm. I, I can't i and I, I can't force myself to write a pop tune i wouldn't even know how it's just a, if a hit is just like a fluke it's just coincidence so i wrote an album a next album for 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 Pete tong and he said cj look i really like the stuff but i don't hear any singles on it and without a single we can't really put it out and I said, well, 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 let me go then. He said, well, we can't do that either because we've signed a contract and we've given you a shitload of cash. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what we need basically is you to go back to the studio and write us some hit singles. And I was like, shit, how the fuck do you do that? I was like, what, what the hell? That's exactly that's what everybody would think in that situation. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, oh, you know, I mean, some people do it naturally. Um, for me, naturally is banging dark underground stuff. You know what I mean? So absolutely yeah sort of oh, that's the one thing that's that's sort of it's a bit of a, a dichotomy because like you were known and uh, as like you know making really underground stuff and like you know Aphex Twin was playing your records out and you know everyone was playing your tunes are huge in the underground like it wasn't really no, no. mainstream stuff you know you no. really had the respect to the underground and 
Yeah, I love that. That I mean, you're right in saying like the sugar is sweeter has like that pop has yeah. a pop sort of. But I mean, it was all new to me as well, and it was fun to do, and I and I still stand. I yeah. still love the track. I mean, it's I didn't do it's anything. A great track. I, it's just I wasn't I wasn't ready for that level of success, and especially the the well the responsibilities that come with it. Like now you have to write us more like hit tunes, and I was like, well, guys, just please, I just wanted to go back to Renault. I was like, just, just let me go, let me go home. I just want to, I don't want to do this anymore. And um, and then it all got stuck in lost. And 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 Pete was adamant. He said, "Look, uh, uh, I think you've got the melody in you. Just 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 bring it out." And he can, you know, he he was just he he was, he was just hoping that I was going to come back with 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 something. Else. And I basically said, "Look, Pete, I, I've got this one tune, which was it ain't going to be me." I said, "That's that's 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 that, that's as that's as poppy and as thing as I as I can as I can imagine. This is as far as I can go with it." So he put that out, and then he said, "Look, all right, well we'll leave it at that, and then we'll and then, and then we'll let you go." But in the meantime, a year and a half or two years have gone past and I've lost all my momentum and I just felt a bit lost. And that's when I met this Tom Barman guy, this Deus guy, and, and that's when I just thought, oh, you know what, I'll just leave this techno lark for a while and I'll try something else. And I just got caught up in something completely different. Also, techno itself was in a bit of a weird stage at that moment in time. Everything went a bit minimal. And um, um, as good as some minimal is, it wasn't really my thing, to, especially not to write and also not for DJing so much. So I was, it was, it was a good time to meet Tommy and to get into a whole different, a whole different uh, swing of things. And then, well, as years went by, uh, the scene changed again. Everything went very electro pop, and then it went, it came, swung back around itself, and then it went to badass fucking proper techno again. And now, for the last, the last five or six years, so techno have been the best years ever. They're Do incredible. Think, oh wow! I think it's insane. It's insane the good music that's coming out. Not the mainstream scene. Not the shit that that they're playing on Radio One, probably or whatever. I mean, nothing against Radio One, but I mean, not the stuff that's 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 rubbed into your faces every day. Not what we call the business techno, but the proper underground scene is bigger than ever, and it's better than ever. It's incredible. It's incredible. Nice. Really Can good. you share some? Who, who's inspiring you right now? What sort of artists? Blauan. Blauan for one. Blauan is amazing. Blauan is my probably my. My, my most favorite, definitely my favorite techno producer at the moment. But loads of people. I mean, Luke, Luke Slater, still, still banging it out, still caning it properly. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like, I'll, just too. I mean, I can, I can make you a list uh, if I start going through my, my collection. But I, off the top of my head, I can't remember all the names and stuff. But just like, I literally, literally, like I said, Blauan is mind blowing. That that kind of techno. I also up until like the Corona crisis and stuff, I, uh, I've got a new residency in Bergheim. Well, you do four hours, four hour sets of all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Only just like blow and mixed with dirty, weird electro stuff and just the hardest shit you can find with the grooviest, funkiest, weirdest shit. Uh, old school, new school, anything, it's all, it just doesn't matter. I don't know if you've ever been to Bergheim. I haven't, but, no. I have I mean, well, a four hour set just sounds like um, the most exciting thing to do as a DJ, to have, be able to really have a journey within what you're doing. What's, well, it's, what's the club it's, like? I mean, what's it like playing there? It's, it's, it's insane. It's literally insane. Uh, uh, for, for one, the sound system is just, well, scary. It's, when you first walk in, the first 10 minutes, you think, oh, my, I, don't, I don't know if I can handle this. It's just too much. It's too big. <laughs> I, mean, you can, I mean, there's big sound systems on festivals, but the volume isn't quite the same. Uh, there's uh, sound systems with massive amounts of bass, all over the planet, but the setup is never quite as perfect or as calibrated as in Bergheim. Is every single thing is totally spot on. There's nothing in the wrong place frequency-wise, and it gets recalibrated every single night for every single event. 
they completely spend two or three hours resetting every single bit of that sound system every single day, my friend. I'm not making this up. Then, then there's that. Then secondly, the crowd. You must know, you must know that Bergan's legendary about being refusing entrance. Mm -hmm. But they don't refuse you because because you look oh well let me put it like this why do they refuse you they refuse you because you don't look as though you're going to be a plus to the party that's all it is if you don't look as though Bergheim is going to be better off with you then then they're not going to let you in that's all it is that's all it is so being very young is not a plus because very young people with their mobile phones taking pictures outside dormant spotted them a mile away and that's not what we want in Berg. well for a start you're not allowed to take pictures in Bergheim. it sounds like it's heaven it, it, it's insane <laughs> But so it's not the easiest place in the world to get in. You have to be basically, if, if you really, really want to be there, you're going to look like you really want to be there and you'll get in, you'll get in. Uh, and then once you're inside, anything goes, anything goes. There's no rules. The only rule is don't piss anybody off. Don't do, don't get your mobile phone out of your pocket. Don't start filming anything. But apart from that, anything goes. You want to be naked. You want to be, you want to start, you know, you, People shagging in the corners, fucking everything's going on. Anyway, it's well, not it's not meant for that. It's not that's not the main thing. But anything goes once you're inside. So as you can imagine, then this massive sound system, all the best DJs on you can imagine from the world. Every single Friday and Saturday night, it's just like all the the most insane lineups. Starts midnight and uh, on the Friday night and ends Monday afternoon at twelve o'clock. Wow! All in one go. It doesn't stop, and it's it's well, it's. Uh, that's what, what can I say you have to at least have been there once you have to see it you have to see it. and if I'm playing there if I'm playing there I can put you on the guest list if you're on the guest list you're as good as it oh great man so, I'd well, love to man yeah and, and oh, man. I, it's, it's, I, what sort of stuff would you how would you approach playing there would that would that sort of give you a bit more freedom to go a bit out there when you, with your you can go there? anywhere you want you can go anywhere you want uh, which is exactly what I do uh, it's what it, like I said, any 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 vintage you want, any 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 level of power or melody or funkiness or weirdness or abstractness, it's all extremely welcome there. But if I mean, as as best as you can, make it a good experience for the crowd. Don't 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 be experimental for the sake of being experimental. Play experimental stuff because it fits in that set bangingly, and it really is a brilliant tune. Mm. So play it, approach it from that point of view. Uh, they just basically like anyway want to have a good time and dance basically so but they're open-minded beyond any way you've ever seen I do also sort of feel the same thing about um, the minimal techno and, and the techno that was uh, really what got going, me going like with sort of, the yeah, the really your stuff, obviously, um, things like uh, Marco Bailey, Redhead, yeah, yeah. like tough, Mark, some Marky G stuff. Dave Clark, just an absolute um, godfather. Uh, he's hopefully yeah. going to be on the show in a few few weeks. Actually. Oh, say hi to him. Say hi. Yeah, he's a legend. And then, I mean, but you are too. I mean, for me personally, my favourite producers of all time is like you and Liam Howlett. I have to just say that. <laughs> Sweet, man. Wow, in the same category as Liam. Nice one. Cheers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the production and the arrangement of your stuff, it just, it really just felt like nothing else. It just felt like there were a lot of people who were 
trying to do it and like you were actually really really hitting it especially with i do yeah i'd love to know where this decision came from so you had that release ain't gonna be me which was the it ended up being the soundtrack for uh, human traffic which was a huge human traffic, yeah. huge sort of um film a uk film about the club industry but yeah, on, the, on the flip side of that you had this track desolate one yeah <laughs> i mean they the two don't those two tracks like don't really they don't correlate they're both amazing tracks um yeah i just thought like for me personally flipping over that single knowing it already and loving it and buying it because i wanted ain't gonna be me on vinyl but playing desolate one was like i can honestly say it changed my life hearing that track right nice one well, the thing is, that's a, that, that's what I'm saying. There's there's no rules, and that's why that's why I had a bit of a hard time with Pete Tong, because uh, it's it's it, they, they like things. Well, it, it's uh, the commercial market has got to be more directed to a certain audience, and I can't do that. I can only write whatever feels right at that at that moment in time, and it can be hard as nails, or it can be totally ambient, or it can be punky, or whatever, or dirty, or evil, or nice and sweet and goody goody. But it can't be directed at somebody specifically. I can't do that. I don't know how that works. Like all I can do is from inside. So, and what I really like as well is like is like the angel devil kind of thing where where this really nice uh, melody in uh, or this or this dramatic uh, melodramatic uh, nostalgic almost melody in uh, in desolate one then bounces off that just stupidly hard sound and just <laughs> noise. You know, it's like it's literally the devil meets the angel. In actual fact, well, you know, that's that's what Desolate One actually. What, what, what that, that's a, that's a that's a Satan song basically. It was supposed to be a follow up to the prophet. The prophet is Jesus, and I wanted Desolate One to be well to be the devil. Wow. And I, I I used I used the sample, like in 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 the prophet, I used the sample uh, Willem Dafoe from um, uh, the Last Temptation of Christ. Mine's called Caesar's Last Temptation of Christ because his speech has that nice crescendo in it as well that builds up. He's, he's talking to the Jews and about, you know, you think God belongs only to you? He doesn't, and he's building and he's building. And it just really felt nice with the tune. Yeah, definitely. It but, says, come with me, but, drop. But on Desolate One, I used Al Pacino from, um, yeah, I know, what? I know, I can see your face, here comes the story. <laughs> uh, Al Pacino from uh, The Devil's Advocate, who has a, a, a moment with Keanu Reeves at the end where he starts explaining, who are you carrying all those bricks for anyway? God, God, you know, and he starts and he starts getting more and more angry and more and more aggressive in his in his speech. And it has this exact same crescendo effect. And I thought, perfect. Now I've got the devil doing the same thing. I'm gonna call this track the desolate one. And and it's and it's like a follow-up to the prophet, but we weren't allowed to use it. Oh, the sample. We weren't allowed to use it. We tried to get it cleared. We tried and tried and tried. And we offered them offered the money, whatever you want, whatever. No, you can't use it. Al doesn't want him to use it. Whereas with uh, Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe himself told Martin Scorsese, I, I, I like it, let's do it. So Willem Dafoe is aware of the is aware of his come with me moment. <laughs> that's cool, man. And Al that's, doesn't want him to use it. That's strange, isn't it? Because um, Martin Scorsese famously used on uh, Mean Streets, what was the Phil Spector song he used on the soundtrack? He didn't get it cleared. Uh, they released... They re- there was about two weeks to go on the release of the film uh, when uh, Phil Spector heard that he was using it on um, uh, on Mean Street. I, I, I don't remember which one it was. Was it Be My Baby, maybe, or something like that? Um, but anyway, he, he's got a bit of double standards if he's they're not letting you use that sample. No, no, man. <laughs> oh, no, no that, sorry, they let you. Let oh, he let you. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, but, that's, sorry, that's what I yeah, mean, double standards. Like, yeah, that's... Um, 
That's amazing, man. There is like a vocal bit on uh, Desolate One. It's like a bit crushed. It's that very last vocal. bit. Yeah, I love that. It's a, it is. It is. It is. It is secretly still Al Pacino, but it's a muffled. It. You can tell it's really muffled. And it's the very last bit of the speech where he says, "I'm a fan of man." <laughs> that was going to be like, like, "Come with me." And I thought, I'm not, I'm just leaving that bit in. I'm just, I'm just, fuck it, I'm just leaving it. You know what, man, when you started explaining that, I was just hoping, I mean, I, yeah, that's so cool, man, that that, that bit crush sample is, um, it's finally nice to know what that is actually being said there, but it's just such a, yeah. it's such an amazing. But it doesn't make any sense without the rest of the speech, but only I know, but now we know. Now we know. <laughs> oh man, I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to put the sample in the track myself. Where, where was it? Where did the sample go? What did you do with it? Well, it's basically well, it's uh, it, it's it's that whole build up to the to the to the I'm a fan of man bit. That whole bit there is that whole speech. And if you if you, if you watch the Devil's Advocate, it's it starts from the bit where he says to Keanu Reeves, "Who are you carrying all those bricks for, God?" And then from there on, and then I didn't use all of it. I cut some bits out, but it starts from that bit, and then it builds up to I'm a fan of man. You'll see. <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. And like I say, it's one of my all-time favourite tracks, that one. And for me personally, last tune in a set, like, every time, just just absolutely always killed it, man. Still get shivers listening to that song. It's funny because when it, when I when we released it, I didn't actually play it that much. Really? I, when it came out, it was sort of, in a weird way, it was a bit too hard or something. It, when Originally in 95, I don't know, was it, what was it, 96 or 97? I don't remember, it was probably later, yeah. Or even ninety-eight, um, but for some reason, in my set when I dropped it, it didn't seem to, it didn't seem to work back then. But now when I play it, it goes off. They go mental. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. I mean, the drop. Um, what were you doing? I mean, we talked. We sort of touched on it a little bit earlier about having your live setup and 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 doing like a live mix because um, yeah. it sounds on that very much like you're riding the faders and your there's there's effects and things happening like how would you how would you arrange the tracks live like that well that's basically what we did well like I said, on that particular one there there was obviously some arrangement in the computer because we wanted the samples in the right place and things like that and the crescendos uh to to work you know that all then things like that were pre-programmed but then like i said we would have drum machines uh, playing from the drum machines, not from the Atari. So we'd be opening, opening uh, drum sounds on the drum machines or unmuting them on the mixing desk on, as we go along. And then basically I'd usually record uh, like 15 different versions of that song, you know, and then just the best one stands or, or cut a piece of that one and, into, and, and paste it into that one. Uh, or whatever just i can't remember specifically for that track how, how, how we did it how many versions there were but that's more or less how we were working most tracks would be the bits that we could that we couldn't do on the fly would be in the atari and then we just have a, a whole section before the before the atari bit kicked in or a whole section afterwards where we just kept banging on the machines and just kept that sequences loop and just kept bringing bringing them in and out on on the faders uh, or, and, and tweaking up auxiliary effects on on the faders in and out, so just things happening live on the fly, and then just cutting the tape and just pasting pasting the bits where we wanted them to be. Amazing, man. I, I, yeah, I, th I think that possibly a lot of people who are make, making tunes in the computer nowadays are sort of missing that tactile uh, connection to the music. You know, the physical uh, arrangement of it, like the. You see a lot of that coming back now, though. The the the, the young generation now. Are hungry for that. They, I mean, they, firstly, they don't want to be drawing lines in some in, in Ableton anymore, uh, modulating effects. They want to, they want to, they want a machine with knobs on. They want to tweak the knobs like we used to do. 
so as you can see, hardware is all over the place again now. There's more hardware than ever, and a lot of it's really good. Yeah, yeah. So I'm getting hooked on buying hardware again. I've got to be careful. Oh, yeah. What sort of things? What sort of things do you like using? Uh, well, firstly, I'm a really I'm a big fan of Arturia. Uh, also, their software is great. But, it is. Uh, I just got myself that Polybrew, and it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. It's a, it's a new, a new. I, I, it's actually I didn't have a Polysynth at the moment. I've, I've only got Monosynths, and it's the new. I, I thought I, I, I need a, I need a good Polysynth. I have got some old ones, but nothing, nothing. I'm not sick to death of using. So I needed a good new Polysynth. <laughs> And, um, and 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 Arteria come up with this polybrew, and not only is it a good policy, it's 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 well, it's 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 got new features that I've never that I've never seen before on, on, on an analog synth. It's got a morph button; you can have two sounds. But analog and digital world, this was already possible. But in an analog world, I'm sure this is brand new. You've got you can have one set of parameters, all your all your knobs facing one way, and then on the second sound, uh, they're all facing somewhere else, and you can morph literally every not even you can have it in steps where you can have it smooth every 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 bit between those two sounds but on an analog scene, this is actually happening analog it's actually i mean how the fuck they've engineered that <laughs> i mean it's it's just an incredible machine also one i really like is the waldorf uh, iridium that's oh, wow. uh that's 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 a blend of digital and analog all together but that's just yeah again it's possibilities on it it's just it's just amazing i've got to say i don't know the iridium like i've got a, a mark one pulse down there yeah. which are great and the blow oh. i know and the string yeah. what, what's the iridium iridium is the uh it's the desktop version of the quantum the quantum was is their latest flagship keyboard right. which is literally it's, it's got three analog oscillators it's got uh three digital oscillators it's got a kernel engine it's got uh a granular synth engine and a nice. sample all in one and all completely intertwinable interchangeable in any which way you want it all works together off of one huge uh touchscreen it's just it's just badass and it's also got all the knobs as well it's got all the knobs as well so you've got knobs and the touchscreen i mean uh the only thing it doesn't do is you can't just talk to it and tell it what to do have you seen there is um apex twin did a um he did like this project uh, with somebody to make a AI, a DX7 AI box, and you can play right. sounds to it, and it'll it'll um, approximate that sound as a DX7 patch, and right. it uses AI to. So um, yeah, I guess we're. It uh, maybe in a few years you'll be able to tell the Iridium what to do. And uh... yeah. I haven't seen that yet, but uh, again, I know I've I've heard I'm aware of it. I'm aware of that he was involved in something like that. But there's so many things going on. I mean, I, but I'm literally every day I'm at school again, learning all these new technologies all over. And, and it's just at some point you've just got to say, well, I, I just want to write some music today. I don't actually want to. I don't want to know what AFX is doing. I don't want to know what this guy's just invented. I don't want to know the possibilities. I just want to write a song. Yeah, Get out of my way. Definitely, man. That's definitely yeah. true. There is a the gear acquisition syndrome is a big one. And I've I've suffered from that for sure. I'm definitely quite minimal now compared to what I used to be with with gear and synths. Um, what about sort of outboard for you, like um, effects? Just like, I don't know, like it would be nice to hear... Like how? What would you? What would you use to process stuff? Like, what do you enjoy using in the studio to process? Well, I've, well, I've, I've, my old classic. So I've got, I've got an, an Eventide H three thousand D, which is uh, 
well, it's just, it's, it's literally it's a classic machine. It's a classic process. It's, it's a, 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 a harmonizer, a digital delay harmonizer thing that had um, possibilities that, well, that, that, are, that, that nowadays even are still, some of them are like, wow, you could do that. Fucking hell. And you could do that, what, 30 years ago? Holy shit. I mean, it was an expensive machine back then. I can't remember what I paid for it. It was a lot of money. But I've, I've still use it to this day. It's just, it does really cool stuff. I mean, I'm, in all honesty, I do obviously do use a lot of software as well. Uh, mostly software for effects and compressing and stuff like that. But I do like certain machines that I still that I still swear by. I, I do actually still like my drama gates. And I also still like using my um, uh, distressor compressors. Even though I've got them in software, I've got them like in, in several times in software by different manufacturers, by Universal Audio, I've got them by Waves and stuff like that. But there's still something about having the hardware machine, you know, there's still something about actually twisting that knob to the right position. And another machine that I really like, which is not something you'd instantly think about getting for a techno studio, but is a, a transient designer. Mm-hmm. It's basically, all it is, it's, it, it, it's a... Um, and an attack and a decay on any sound that you input through it, it adds extra attack, extra extra punchiness, a bit like a compressor would, but literally just on the attack. Or it can it can it can shorten the decay or or or, or stretch it a bit. And I, again, I've got that in software, but I've got a really nice hardware version, and it's just it just does lovely things. And it's I, and I think I use it on every single track. Really, at some point. What yeah, sort of things it's do always, you do with it, like in I mean, in, I mean, in context? I mean, you can you can you can use it or well, effecty sort of if you want to stretch something out a bit. But that's not it's generally what I would use it for. I usually a lot. I use it a lot on things like snares or on claps and stuff like that, just to get the right exactly right length that you want of that that, that clap. It, I like having a, a good a good amount of reverb on a clap, but I don't want it twanging on yeah. for ages. Yeah, yeah. Gate on it, it just cuts off, or it's you know, I, with this transient design, I just get a really nice attack and a really nice length of how I want my clap or my snares to sound. I've used it for lots of other things as well, but those that would be the main feature for it. And I'm, I'm, I know that's a silly thing, but it's it, it, it once you're used to it, you can't do without it. Yeah, I literally I'd be pissed off if I had to mix it, mix the track down without it. <laughs> yeah, I think like you, uti- yeah, sometimes utility is like the most useful thing. Um, yeah, especially that sort of um, stuff that messes with the transients. That's really cool, man. It's not, I guess it's not something that people sort of lord over, but it's ridiculously useful. Well, in the early days, back in the RNS days, I didn't even use compressors. We had them, RNS had compressors, and I sort of, sort of knew what they were for, but I didn't see the need. I, did, I, just, I just felt it, it sounded really good. So if it wasn't broke, don't fix it. And it wasn't until after, well, literally after... 95, 96, that I started seeing what well, value of, of having a good compression on your kick and then side chain compressing certain stuff to get more, well, just basically to get more out of the dynamic side and to get more volume when needed. Uh, and then also it instantly saw the danger of that, which is what is oh, well, over the last 10 years where it's just everything just gets side chained the fuck out of it. And, and, and yeah, well, listen, listen I'll like my tunes, but yeah, it's, there's no dynamics Zero in it dynamics, whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> I have a gain knob on my on my mixer. I can turn it up a bit louder if the mix is a bit low. But if it's got more fucking balls because it's not being squashed to death, it's going to kick kick the ass out of your tune. You know what I mean? So definitely, I've I've heard people say recently about um, a lot of hip hop producers that just don't use any compression, 
and um, I've sort of yeah I've been messing around with doing that recently and it's it's cool <laughs> I mean again yeah as a limitation it's that's what you need I mean I, now that you've got you've got sidechain equalizers and stuff like that it's good sort of good sidechain equalizing software which I now prefer to sidechaining the compressor because basically the volume stays the same but where where where, where two sounds conflict in in bass for instance where if, they're, if they're somewhere in the 80 or the 90 hertz they're conflicting when those two sounds are crossing over each other it takes away that frequency just at that moment in time but as soon as it as, as the other sound disappears it brings it back you get really nice results without without messing with the the, the overall volume like that but yeah there is something to be said about not compressing it and there is something to be said about compressing it well you know it's just both, both, both have good sides, and both have possibilities to ruin a track, and both, both can be great. One of the one of the tracks that stands out um, for yours, the production, is uh, the the big bone mix that you did of Moon Shake It. Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. The production on that That's, is phenomenal. Like, yeah, that was that was that was when was that? It was probably like ninety nine somewhere. Was it? Or somewhere? Oh no, I think that was actually no, that was early two thousands. Yeah, could have been. Yeah, maybe two thousand. That, that That's why I just got a new mixer. I just got a new mixing desk. I got my first digital mixing desk. Would you believe? I got the Sony DMX one hundred. Oh wow! Because because I started working with Tommy because we started working with the, as, as a band. And uh, up until then, we were, I was pretty much mostly starting a track and then finishing a track and putting it down to tape. And then when I started working with Tommy, that wasn't possible a lot of the times because he would, he would come in for a day or two and then I wouldn't see him for a week. He'd be working on something else. And then those days in between, I didn't I, you know, I'd want to work on something else. So I thought I didn't want to have to start recalling analog mixing, mixing desks and stuff like that anymore taking Polaroids of all the settings <laughs> and stuff like that. I'll get myself a nice digital mixer. Uh, so I shopped around and, and found one that sound had a really good, a really good sound to it. it just, I didn't want to lose my analog quality. And the Sony thing had just, it just had really good EQs. It's still one of the best equalizers. It's got the Sony um, called the Oxford EQ. Also, I had uh, onboard uh, uh, compression on it, which was all saved me a lot of money in the long run as well. I'm buying extra compressors, but it had uh, obviously because it was a digital desk, total recall. So you could be halfway down your mix, uh, press save, uh, load uh, techno track I was doing yesterday, boop, boop, and you've got your, your, while you're working on your other track, you're on your other mix in, in one second flat. Whereas in an analog studio, it takes three hours to recall a track. Exactly. Yeah. And you did that. And, and you could never probably with. get it quite to exactly where you had it. <laughs> so that's so why I got the mixer and this, this new mixing desk. And uh, I think I think that um, uh, remix I did for uh, Ghost uh, for uh, uh, was it Moon. Ghost? I think it's the Moon. Yeah, Moon. moon. The guy called DJ Ghost. That's his. That's his DJ name. Um, um, was one of the first things I did on that desk. So I really, really. I was really testing it, really trying, how can I make this kick? How far can I compress it? How, how far can I push it into the limiter? And so, yeah. Great track, man. Love and again, that. one of those tunes that I rarely played out myself when I, when it was first came out, but then after, then after a couple of years, uh, a couple of years later, I, I sort of rediscovered it and thought, oh, I'll drop that in my set again. And it just went off and I thought, and I played it way more 
more recently than I played it when I when I when I originally did it. If you see what I'm saying. Absolutely, I can I can see it working, man, to, for sure. It's so like it's so ballsy, and it's um, yeah, you play with the decay on like the lead that lead sort of stab sound, and that's just so satisfying to hear like that sort of opening and closing. But the thing is, the thing is as well that that's one of those things. Um, uh, DJ Ghost, a good friend of mine, is a very popular DJ well, around the world, but especially in Belgium. But he plays the more bonsai, the more kind of like the the, the harder, but the also slightly cheesier, let's say, uh, side of techno. Whereas I come from the from the Jeff Mills, you know, the underground resistance, that kind of thing. Uh, but I'm not I'm not scared of a good bonsai tune, you know, when it's a proper fucking banging tune like George Stevenson and things like that. I'm I'm just as into it. And with the ghost tune, the original one was a little bit on the cheesy side. And I thought, well, you know, how can I, how can I get the best of both worlds out of this? How can I make it funky, a bit more Detroit sounding, but still give it that ghost welly, you know, that big boot in the fucking, in the bottom end. So yeah, that's what, that's became one of those, uh, which oftentimes doesn't work because it becomes neither here nor there. But for, if you get it just right, the balance just right, you get one of those, but you know, the, yeah pretty much fit well it. you absolutely yes. smashed that one um still yeah i love that track i love the production on it it's just absolutely another, phenomenal another little anecdote about that track there's a there's a well there's a voice in it there's a voice to say get on the floor and shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. sounds like something i've harmonized with the even title something but that's actually ghost that's a beyond dj ghost himself that's just his straight natural voice he doesn't talk like that but he manages to perform with his, he got he got that sound. I was like, "What the fuck did you fucking do?" Got a really gruff voice. I said, "I'm not putting any effects on that man. That sounds brilliant, just like that." It does. I, I mean, yeah, it definitely sounds like some sort of pitch modulation, or yeah, it's dark. Honestly, it's really dark. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So yeah, um, you said you were producing for a friend of yours. Yeah. Yeah, Tommy. That's Tommy. Well, the guy I had the band Magnus with. That's I'm now producing for his band Deus. Oh, cool, man. Yeah. So what are you working on with them? Basically, uh, it's just at this moment in time, it's just me and him in the studio. What what we do is uh, every two or three weeks, they have a jam session with the full band. They come in and record like whole day's worth of them jamming and faffing about and doing stuff. And then we cut little bits and stuff out, uh, little good bits out, make little loops, make little arrangements. Tommy takes it home. He starts writing new chords. He starts writing lyrics, does stuff like that. He comes back and we just build from there. And then when things start getting into certain levels of shape, when it starts sounding like a bit of a song, uh, we had the band back in again, and then they played the whole thing again uh, off the back of what we sort of uh, demoed uh, up until that point, and then we get new, new, better versions of it, and that's how pretty much the, the, the working process, progress, process with day with with Davis. It's not always like that, but that's why most songs sort of sort of come come uh, come to be. Yeah. Um, sometimes some days are really good fun and really exciting. Some days are boring. Some days are just insanely hard work because he's got. Stupid amounts of energy from me. <laughs> He's, I mean, I, I mean pretty much everybody I know has got some form of HD or OCD or Tourette's or whatever kind of. We've all got something going on, but I think he's got all of them at once. <laughs> and he smokes and he opens his first can of beer at 10 in the morning. And he's just screaming shit at me all day long. Oh, George, let's try that. Let's do that. He knows technically nothing. He can't wait. He doesn't even know how to switch his own laptop on. <laughs> but he's a musical genius. And he's an insane. And I'm genuinely, he's the best poet you've ever fucking heard. He's an incredible songwriter. He's really good friends with Nick Cave. They're good, they're good pals. Wow, wow. Sounds like a great guy, man. Honestly, he's, he's that level as well. He's that, he's that level. Incredible. I mean, in Belgium, you have a harder time getting, getting to that level of fame 
as somebody like Nick Cave, but he's not far off that level of fame, but he's definitely on that level as a songwriter. You should you should check him out. Deus, with a small D and a capital E-U-S. Sounds brilliant, man. I mean, such a diverse range of material that you that you're able to deliver. I get bored. I just get bored if it's always the same. That's why, I mean, to my disadvantage in certain ways, but it's, I mean, to my advantage, to my mental health, I mean, I just love, I just love all the different different angles because Tommy, believe it or not, also has a jazz band, which I also produce. So like on certain months, we just, it, it's it's jazz all day long. The next the next month, it's like we're doing rock rock music and, and then it's an electro pop band and then it's me doing Bergheim techno. <laughs> and all that together makes me feel good. It doesn't make me very much richer. If I'd been making techno all the time, I would have been more wealthier than I am. But it's I feel good about it. You know, it's just it's just the right thing to do for me. I literally get bored shitless. I can't imagine writing the same old boring ass business techno tune every day like some people whose names I won't mention. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just I can't. I, I mean, yeah, okay, if that works for you, that's fine. But it doesn't work for me. Yeah, I think that's the same for pop stars, isn't it? When they're touring exactly the same set all over the place, um, you know, you send yourself mad doing that. I really admire producers like you who do move and 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 like you said at the beginning, you always want to learn, and that's an make that sort of growth mindset is is um, keeps you creatively active, well, doesn't the it? The only reason I ever even started making music was because I just wanted to enjoy myself. <laughs> it's it's one of the, I loved those sounds, and I just couldn't get enough of them. And it was also a lot harder to come by that kind of music back. I mean, in the, in the end of the seventies, beginning of the eighties, uh, most record shops were selling the Rolling Stones. They weren't selling like. Uh, some weird underground band from the States called the Executive Slacks. You had to go and dig for that stuff. And also, I was still very young, didn't have a lot of money. It was whatever pocket money or whatever money I could make washing cars on the side or some <laughs> stuff like that. You know? and, and, a, and, and one piece of vinyl was pretty much a whole week's worth of money gone. So uh, it was cheaper to make the music yourself. Amazing, man. <laughs> In the long run. I never thought I was going to be making records. That was never the plan. It was just, it was literally just for fulfillment. And then I got that phone call from Renat and then there you go. So. Well, you got pretty bloody good at it. <laughs> Cheers. Um, do you have over, like, do you have any like particular mantra or philosophy that you, that you go by? Not really. I mean, I do at certain moments in time, the mantras seem to change a lot as I go, as I go along and as I learn that that old mantra was bollocks. <laughs> but not really not really i just yeah, just get on with it just get you know every day is another day whatever uh like i said just take it as it comes and don't just don't be boring <laughs> that's it that that's literally it i mean i don't tell i don't tell myself that because i tend to do that naturally anyway so i have to tell myself for once don't overdo it because i, I just that's i that's that's my worst my, my worst uh vice in the studio is I'm always too curious to see what's around the corner of the next tweak, if you see what I mean. And even though Absolutely. I'm totally loving what I'm hearing, but what if I just slightly, or if I just put that effect on it, or what if I just, and then before you know it, you've lost that what you were originally point where you were at and you're somewhere else. And, and, and you could just do that forever and never finish the song. So there's got to be a certain point where you go, right, this not this, I, I'm keeping this. This is it. This is good. So that's why I was, when you said, do overdo it. That's when I have to tell myself not to overdo it. Just to, there's a point where I've got to be happy with it. But like I said, that that is pretty much the mantra. Just don't be boring. Excellent. No, I think that's a good one, man. Well, um, it's been fantastic to speak to you today, Christian. 
Sweet. Uh, yeah, I absolutely loved your music, and yeah, the music you released uh, in the last few years has also been amazing. What the you know techno, the acid, the electro. I'll send you some stuff. Look at the band stuff and stuff. So you know that well, that's it's a whole different thing. But it's but it's nice. I mean, you might like it, you might not, but I think you might be interested in it. I'll send you some some links. I would love it. Yeah, any anything you recommend, you know, the techno artists from the modern world. Um, yeah, anything at all, man. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I, I really regret that the band was is that we 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 it was really hard when we tried to tour it around Europe it was really hard to get to get the interest in Belgium we were a massive success we had like a whole bunch of number one signals but Belgium's tiny Belgium I mean being number one in the charts is just enough to pay the rent basically but <laughs> you don't get very far with it so it's basically uh, uh, be successful in Europe and the rest of the world or, or, or it's more it becomes more of a hobby kind of thing now with my with my techno that we've managed to do that, but with the Magnus thing, we never really got there. We've really tried, and it never sort of. We were massive in Belgium and, and very good in Holland, but we we couldn't we couldn't break the UK. The UK was just not interested. It, was, it just didn't even give us a chance. Just literally wouldn't play it. Uh, we did okay in France and in Portugal, but it was all just not enough to get it going. It's just hard. It's a hard thing coming from a, such a small country as Belgium to be taken serious anyway. It's, it's really that's why I was lucky with techno that there was no there was no face to it there was no nationality to it originally you know it was just like it was just instrumental music and it could be anywhere anything and there's, there's no no nationality directly linked to it originally I'm saying that was exactly so, that's true um, yeah I spoke to Jake McNeil who's the manager of uh, Maro Picotto for like nine years or something and um, yeah we we talked about that time and it was like those electronic music scenes were like they weren't there was it wasn't really about your nation it wasn't really about for where you're from it was about like the scene and the music wasn't it oh great man well yeah. yeah i'd love to hear this the new stuff you're working on um yeah it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you man Cheers, man nice one yeah i enjoyed it Well, uh, I still can't believe I actually had a conversation with CJ Bolland after idolising him really as a producer uh, for many years. You can probably hear that in the interview. It's just amazing what can happen, you know, it really is amazing. Uh, he is a phenomenal producer. Uh, if you go and listen to Desolate One or, you know, Karmag, the tracks we talked about, his Big Bone Mates, my God knock your socks off and I think for people who know him they know the influence that he had and uh, yeah just how great he is as a producer okay that's it for this week uh, don't know how we're going to follow that up but I think we're going to do it every week in May we have an episode coming out so next week in only seven days we've got Plugin Guru on the show who's a man who's grown up with synths his whole life and has turned it into a, a profession uh, and he has his own software which is uh, really 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 cool um, yeah please support the podcast if you can uh, if you don't want to donate you can just share it around a bit uh, or you can buy the things I sell my Max for Live devices my music hardware that I make uh, anything you can do which will support me um, will help also to support the podcast Thank you very much once again for listening. I don't know how this thing happened, but uh, yeah, it's, it's turning into something amazing. And I thank you for your support and listening. Uh, I'm Idiara, and I will speak to you in one week's time.